Hello, my name is James Alexander Sinclair. So it is Wednesday morning and we are in the Peak District. Why, I hear you ask yourselves, are we in the Peak District? Because we are at the RHS Chatsworth Flower Show and here I am standing in a field by a floral pavilion full of deliciousness and there on the hill is Chatsworth House smiling down upon us in a sort of uh, beneficial kind of way. Uh, So it's the second RHS Chatsworth Flower Show and I'm very much hoping that lots and lots and lots and lots of people will be coming to uh, buy plants and to look at show gardens and to look at all the wonderful things that we have so as a quick rundown obviously i need to draw your attention to a little installation that i personally have done myself which is called keeping it under your hat and and basically it's 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 a little tiny garden and a huge bowler hat and you'll have to come here to see exactly how those two things work together Uh, but it's basically it's a collaboration between uh, me as a gardener and with some uh uh, set design students some theater theater set design students in worthing and a, a set designer and they have built me a four-metre-wide bowler hat. So come and see that. Uh, Other things to which I would like to draw your attention is obviously we have a really nice selection of show gardens here. Uh, We have... Uh, what is basically a model that looks a little bit like a bouncy castle, but it isn't really a bouncy castle. It's an inflatable model of one of Paxton's uh, glass houses, Paxton being the very famous head gardener who uh, used to work at Chatsworth and went on to build the Crystal Palace in London. Uh, and in that construction is the largest display of orchids that you will ever, ever have seen ever in any of your lives, no matter how old you may be. Hi, I'm Sue Biggs, RHS Director General, and I'm standing here in front of the RHS Letters, full of flowers at Chatsworth Flower Show. And it's absolutely beautiful. And most important of all, there's no rain in the forecast for the whole week, which is just wonderful. It's such a happy show, this. I love the feel of this show. I think for me, I mean, some of the highlights here are amazing this year. The marquees this year, I, you know, I take my hat off to British nurserymen. They are amazing. After Beast from the East, the second Beast from the East, temperatures going up, down, sideways. How they manage to produce so many perfect, beautiful plants, I really have no idea. They, they look absolutely beautiful. And we've got some fabulous installations here, including from Chelsea gold medal winner Sarah Eberly. I love her, her installation. There, it's really great fun, and then obviously, our show sponsors here, Wedgwood, have done a brilliant. What I love about this show is you know you're in Derbyshire, so their installation in front of their tea conservatory with the dry stone walling and the well dressings here it's got the feel of yes, an RHS flower show, but also a local show, and it's such a great feel. And this orchid installation, I honestly think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen at an RHS flower show. I think it's actually quite moving. It's so beautiful. Well, hello, my name's Jonathan Mosley, and we're here in the Great Pavilion at RHS Chatsworth Flower Show. And my job here at the show has been to fill this enormous space with beautiful orchids. My display is themed around the Phalaenopsis or the moth orchid and all of them are British grown which I'm very proud about because I work as a British flower ambassador so there's over 5,000 British grown orchids in here which I think is amazing people because everybody imagines that they're really tropical and they've been flown into the country so they're quite astounded with the fact that they've been grown in Hampshire by double H nurseries. Well, as people walk into the pavilion, there's not just one way in, there's actually six different entrances into here, but they're met with this central structure, a big column that's like a living green wall on four sides. And out of this green wall, there's cascades of orchids bursting forth. 
two of the colours are pinks and cerise, two of the walls are whites, and then shimmering above there, these 17 enormous chandeliers, which stand about seven feet tall, and they suspend right from the top of the dome, which must be about 50 feet tall. You know, it's an enormous space. Then around, there's a circle of interesting orchid installations from picture frames shimmering with glass bottles with orchids in there a wall of mini centered orchids we've even got a photo frame opportunity which is full of rather luxurious vander orchids which almost look reptilian with their stem structure and patination on the petals and people can stick their head through there and have a wonderful selfie show so it's all about fun you know flowers to me it's about making them accessible enjoyable and making people smile Many people are unaware that orchids are actually scented and when I've been working with them, particularly in the early morning, there's the most amazing fragrance that oozes out, particularly of the small ones. And Double H Nurseries have bred this range of mini Phalaenopsis that are fragrant. The mini orchids, the fragrant ones are British grown. I've also got some Miltonias, which are really strongly scented. And it's amazing, that scent of an orchid is quite subtle, but it's almost like some perfumes, there's different layers, there's different levels to it. And at different times of the day, you just walk past and you're met with this fusion of fragrance. Really, it's quite intoxicating. And another thing that I'm doing here, we've got a British flower bus outside, parked outside here. And that's my other hat that I'm wearing, although my hat today is filled with orchids. It's often filled with British flowers. And that, again, to get these messages out there that we want British flowers back into our British flower shops. And we want our public to say, what's in season? Ask your florist, what's local? What's in season? What's at its best? So just like we've got that provenance with food, we also want it to attach itself to flowers because at the minute, the flower bus, if you go on there, it's oozing the succulent scent of stocks and there's nothing like stocks in summertime. British grown in Lincolnshire from three of our different growers, three of our best stock growers and those deep purples, those lilacs, all absolutely emanating the colour of the orchids, which is quite interesting. So you could mix a gorgeous orchid with a bouquet of scented stocks. What a nice combination. As you come out uh, from, from visiting the orchids and being wowed by them, uh, is that you then walk into a long floral pavilion full of nurseries and people and plants for sale, which is one of the main reasons why anybody comes to shows. You can then walk across the river and, and go and look at show gardens and more installations and then wander back. If you wander back, you would have find that just around the corner is something called the Garden Theatre. Okay, a garden theatre is full of speakers and lecturers and people here to help you make your gardening easier and more fun. And, just coincidentally, that is where we are doing the first ever RHS live podcast question time. So right now, I am going to walk through the doors and see who is there to answer the questions. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. This is the RHS Chatsworth Flower Show 2018, and it is not raining. Hooray! The sun is poking its little head from behind the clouds at that point. The place is full of plants, the place is full of gardeners, the place is full of gardens and everything. Who here has bought something that they really don't need? Of course you have, because that's one of the reasons why you're here, is to come and buy plants that you fall in love with instantly and realise there is nowhere at all to put them in your garden. You then get home and think, where the hell am I going to put it? And then you have to come up with something. So that is one of the reasons why we're here. The other reason why we're here is this. At this moment, history is being made. You are part of history. Because this is the first time that we have ever done an RHS podcast live Q&A session. 
So this is the beginning. So you are at the beginning of something very, very special. And in order to do that, some of you have given me questions. Others of you have questions in your heads that you would like me to answer. Except I'm not going to answer them because I know very little indeed. However, I do have people who know an awful lot. So what I would like is I would like huge cheers and rounds of applause for, first of all, for Lee Hunt. This is the man at RHS Advisory who knows everything about everything. And for Helen Bainbridge, who is an RHS judge and knows everything that Lee doesn't know, she knows. And finally, we have Martin Fish, who is the king of the north and, and the ruler of this kingdom here. And he knows the other bits that they don't know. So between the three of them, they should be able to answer everything. So who is going to go first? Can you tell me what your name is and where you come from? I'm Margaret and I'm from South Derbyshire. My question is, how do you get rid of ants in a lawn? I have a big front lawn and I must have about 40 different ants' nests I keep chasing for years and I don't know what to do. Lee, Ants. Uh, well, they're, of course, great biodiversity. We would love to see little creatures crawling up our legs in the garden. But uh, where you do start to get a lot in the lawn, you will get these little mounds of soil. And, of course, you run the mower over and you get all these little bare patches squashed in. Uh, there's a great new thing, which is a biological control that you water onto the lawn, so we don't need to resort to chemicals. This is something we can order on the internet, mix up in a watering can, water it on, and it'll kill the eggs that are hatching uh, underneath in their nests as well. So a relatively safe new thing that we can try to make it a lot better. Oh, hello. My name's Juliet. I'm a garden designer in Bucks. And my question is about the control of pests and diseases in plants with the growing importation of plants from the continent. So if they're imported by a nursery, they are controlled, they're quarantined if necessary, they're inspected. But I know a lot of uh, property developers who import plants direct from Europe, and they go straight, they come over on big container lorries, they go straight into clients' gardens. There is no control at point of entry. So I just wondered what, what the laws are regarding that. Well, there, there are very strict controls about imports and, of plants into the country, um, but we're aware that lots of things do come in because um, being part of the European Union, the trade with plants at the moment is very free and easy. And the point is the controls happen at the boundaries of the EU. So in theory, they should be checked to be clean before they're transported across the channel. So that should give some protection. And this is why, for example, um, thinking about recently, I don't know if you've noticed the wonderful uh, Penicetium, the grass, it's quite an invasive species in the Mediterranean. So it's actually been taken off the list of sale because we didn't want it causing problems. So those kind of controls also apply to pests and diseases. But I think here at the show, we're very aware that a lot of people go on holiday and bring things back. And this can mean in this country as well as from abroad. So for example, you go towards south of England, you'll find fuchsia gall mite is quite a common plant. So if you go and uh, stay in with friends and you're thinking, right, oh, they've got a beautiful fuchsia, I'm going to bring back a bit, you might want to be cautious because you could bring back this little mite that distorts all the flowers and actually therefore infects your garden and there are no controls. So keeping it out, even though it's already in the country, from, but keeping it out from your own garden is the first step. For quarantine for a wider thing, 
well, we might decide to have a quarantine area in our own garden. Has anyone yet been over to the RHS uh, Plant Health Garden, which is just the other side of the marquee? Go and have a look. Uh, it's got a sort of mini quarantine area, and it shows you also about the, some of the threats that are coming in. So I've talked about fuchsia gall mite, which is in the country, but there's another problem called xylella, it's already in Europe, and we don't want it here. So things like that. If you can go to a British lavender grow and get your lavenders, they should be propagated on site, should be much safer for you. I mean, it's, it, it is a, a complicated subject, and one that gets more and more complicated all the time. But, but the RHS are on it, and DEFRA are on it, and we're trying to do whatever we can. OK, you have a question. Who are you? Where, you, where do you come from? I'm Audrey from Chesterfield. I'm interested in growing some herbs. Uh, um, Rosemary. Rosemary is very good for the memory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, basil, parsley, and mint. Best to grow in pots or actually in the garden. Okay, herbs. Growing herbs. Helen, do you want growing herbs? Yeah, I can do herbs. Um, yeah, great growing herbs in pots, especially with things like mint, because you can keep them contained. If you plant them out, they'll just run everywhere and they'll be into everything. So they look lovely in pots as well, especially some of the thymes, and there's lots of different foliage types and colours in the herbs, so they look lovely arranged in pots. And outside your back door, you know, you can just nip out when you're preparing a, a nice salad or so, you know, some sort of meal and just you know pick them pick them fresh and, and use them like that and they're brilliant and in the garden so i wouldn't maybe put the mint in the garden unless you've got somewhere where you can let it conolize because uh, it just basically runs oh but if you're going to grow them in the garden they like most herbs like a well-drained soil a lot of them come from the mediterranean region so they don't want wet sticky clay in a shady position so i know chesterfield is known for its hot summers uh, baking sun so choose a sunny site in the garden and if it's a little bit heavy maybe work in some grit just to create that lovely free drainage and plant at this time of the year because you know we've got the whole of the summer ahead of us uh, get them in there water them in to get them established and you'll find that homegrown herbs are so much better than these little pots you buy in supermarkets because when the sun beats down on them all the essential oils develop and they have so much more flavor and scent uh, and you know the perennials you can keep going for years and years Years and years. So, yeah, I think that's your mission today. Marquee over there, herb stand, go and get your herbs. There we go. Herbs for everybody. Uh, Kia, we had a question here. Maureen Firth from York uh, had a clematis pot last year, beautiful with a lattice structure in a pot, beautiful flowered. In the winter, unfortunately, it got blown over, had to extricate what we could, cut it right back. This year, I've got it growing up, beautiful green but no flowers. I don't suppose you know what type of uh, clematis it is. You know, it was a small purple bell-like oh, flower right. hanging, down, okay. uh, hanging down. It was so beautiful. So it was a, a spring flowering one then, by the sound I think it, it was flowering Alpine by this time. clematis macropetala, probably. They flower usually April time with these lovely little blue mm. bell-shaped flowers. Mm. Um, mm. They always flower on the previous season's growth. So the fact that oh. you cut yours down because of the, the trellis, you, know, yes. you cut all the growth off, so oh. all the flowering wood was cut off as well. So it should now be making lots of growth. 
hopefully. Yes, it, it is. And growing really it's well. It's beautiful and now, that's, all green. That's perfect. Yeah. Hide your secateurs. Right. Do not prune it right. until after flowering next year because all that growth it's making now will flower next spring. And then you can give it a bit of a tidy up if you need to uh, and do that every year. So remember, if they're spring flowering, you prune immediately after flowering. Mm. And even though it's really bushy and coming down as well, yeah, I'll leave it. Yeah, leave it. I mean, they will... Okay. Th th if it's the alpina, they'll grow sort of eight, ten feet. So I don't know where you've planted it. You, you, just, but it's, just give it room a, to grow. An obelisk. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, we'll just let it go up. Let just it let go. it go. Okay, okay Helen, favourite clematis. What's your favourite clematis in the world? Um, well, I love Montana. And, and you can get smaller varieties of Montana because it is a bit of a, you know, it just gets everywhere. Um, but if you go and speak to the clematis specialist in the marquee, if you want a small flowering uh, Montana, they'll recommend one. And there's some lovely scented ones as well. Okay, Lee, favourite clematis? Uh, Prince Charles. Of course, what else? Uh, well, of course. <laughs> but it, it has those amazing sort of azure blue flowers, a little bit smaller than Pearl d'Azur and more floriferous. So I think it's an improvement on that old favourite. I like the Viticellas. Viticella clematis, they flower, flower a little bit later and you cut them down to about 18 inches every February and that's pretty much all you have to do. Uh, right, we're going to take a, a, a little diversion because, because rather like, you know, if you go to a concert and there's a band playing and then suddenly they say, and ladies and gentlemen, our special guest, Kylie Minogue, or something like that. We have the equivalent of Kylie Minogue here in that we have Steve Porter, who is the, who's the gardens manager and big cheese of the Chatsworth Gardens. Okay, so, so, so although he doesn't look much like Kylie Minogue, he sings very, 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 very well. So, so take it away. Um, uh, Steve, you are, you've been at Chatsworth for how long? Uh, just over 10 years. Oh, gosh, quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. You well, must... not in Chatsworth terms. You know, it's a lifetime here. So, yeah, yeah. Mo many people have been here for generations. So, quite new, but yeah, just over 10 years. And, and this is the second year of the show. It is. And, and, and uh, I'm assuming that you are, you are involved in what, what the Irishers have set up here. Yeah, been very involved right from the beginning in terms of content and trying to make it relevant. You know, we have a long history of horticulture here and we want to make sure the show tells some of those stories and has some relevance. So the themes are all based around some of our themes and the Great Conservatory, obviously the Inflatable Great Conservatory, a great, you know, recreation of something that was here back in the 1840s. So we're telling the story of orchids in there this year and, and in one of the pavilions. Last year it was bananas, next year we're looking at themes and we want to just create something that's relevant to Chatsworth. And, make, you know, and, and, here. and how do orchids fit in with Chatsworth? When, when were the first? orchids arrive at Chatsworth? Uh, there was probably orchids here before, but certainly the Sixth Duke and Joseph Paxton, the head gardener of the Sixth Duke, orchid mania, and they started, they started collecting in the 1820s, 1830s, and went you know, right through with orchid mania to the 1850s and 60s, where they were collecting thousands and thousands of examples, building glass houses, especially Fulham here, um, and also then sending gardeners out to collect orchids as well. So there's many that are named after the family or named after Paxton because they were named here. So we've got this long, we, our collection is much smaller, but we are showing it in the Great Pavilion and we're just showing that we've got this great heritage and we want to continue and develop that. And the gardens are always changing as well. This is not a garden that, that stands still. You've got new gardens coming on. Yeah, all the time. Uh, every generation, every member of the family wants to add more, wants to improve it, which is fantastic. It keeps it alive, keeps it developing. The current generation, no different. They're, they're here, they're shopping, they're getting inspiration. We're working with some fantastic designers and we are developing the garden, adding more in. It's hugely exciting. You know, we, our team's growing. We've got more going and more planting than we've ever done before. And so, yeah, it continues to be alive and continues to grow and develop, which is great and just goes so perfectly with the show. And how many gardeners do you have? 
We have florists, we have gardeners, we have vegetable gardeners, about 25. And then we have five uh, different types of trainees that are with us all the time and 75 volunteers that help us every week as well. So big team, lots going on, but we've got 100 acres of garden and lots, lots to do. 75 volunteers, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So that's just anybody who lives locally who wants to come and help? Yeah, we have a whole range of people, people that are young, that are trying to get into the industry, trying to build experience, people that just have a few hours and want to get out of the house and come and work in the garden, and then people that have known it all their life and just the opportunity to get into the garden early in the morning before everybody else does and go and weed or pick up litter or turn do whatever, you know, they're, they're interested. And so, yeah, they're great, and they make such a difference to keeping on top of, particularly this time of year, everything. Um, uh, just as a, a, a reminder, obviously, all of these questions, if you forget what they are, you can go to the RHS website uh, or wherever you get your podcast from and you can catch up on all the stuff that we're talking about. Right. Yeah, my name's Claire Brentnell and I'm from Shropshire. Um, I planted uh, Ranja quince about 15 years ago and it started off brilliantly and it, it fruited and everything else. And it's progressively gone downhill. And last year, it virtually lost all its leaves. And I thought, well, it's a goner. But this year, it's blossomed wonderfully. And I think there's a sort of powdery mildew on it. Can I manage myself out of this situation? Can we salvage the Vranja? 15 or 20 feet high. Mm. 15 or 20 feet high. Um, uh, Steve, do you grow quinces? Yep, we do. We have um, some in the kitchen garden, and we have been suffering too. And I was going to look towards Lee, because there is something that's attacking them, isn't there, Lee? There is a blight, a which blight. Uh, attacks the leaves. So you might get lots of spotty leaves. Does that sound familiar? And then it can cause some defoliation as well. For that, it's best to collect all the leaves and take them away and cancel composting, because it'll hot and kill the disease on the leaves or um, you know burn them if you've got the ability to so we've been suffering the same and, and we've done exactly that and we've also we've taken them out into the garden because we had them all in the kitchen garden at the right place but we were suffering across the kitchen garden so we've actually taken some and put them further out into the garden just to keep them isolated and hopefully keep them safe so um, we will get good crops hopefully from those ones sometimes the, uh, a tree that blossoms beautifully is a sign that it's actually going to give up on you isn't it occasionally it can be it can yeah. be yeah. it's just like a swan song a rather beautiful <laughs> and elegant one but it can, and, and because how does that work? Yeah, I mean, the, if, if something is really stressed, it will put all its energy into flowering because it thinks it's going to die, so it wants to reproduce and produce seeds. So it, it flowers like mad, hopes to get pollinated, and then it produces seed and dies. Hopefully that's not going to happen to yours. <laughs> Do all the right things, and we will. our prayers will go with you somewhere. OK, so, madam, hello, your name is? I'm Sue from Wiltshire, and I grow things on chalk. I have been advised when planting shrubs to dig the hole, put newspaper on the bottom, put the plant in with some compost, etc., and then but put all the proper compost on the top because otherwise it'll go down to wherever. Is that correct? Did you get that? We dig a hole in chalk and we put newspaper at the bottom of the hole and then put all the compost on, on top of it. Is that right? On the top of the soil, yes. Not in, not in the hole, but on top of it. So a bit of soil, but do all the feeding from above, I think, is, what is, is, is what's happening. Can, can I ask the lady, is this a very shallow, chalky soil, or have you got yes, a reasonable very. depth? So what sort of depth of soil have you got? This, 
Right, so for radio terms, that's about a foot, would you say, nine or nine at inches? The most. Uh, nine inches, ten yeah, inches of yes, salt. Yes, at the most, nine and, inches to a foot. And then rock underneath. Then white chalk. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't garden on chalk, but the way I think I would probably approach it is you obviously get very well-drained soil, so the moisture is going to go and the nutrients are going to go. So I suppose the theory of the newspaper is to almost act as a base to stop everything going out. But I don't know, it's, it's going to rot. So I think I would be tempted to, wherever you're going to plant, just get some really good organic matter compost or well-rotted manure and prepare that area. So a bucket full of compost on the area you're going to plant a shrub. Fork it into the depth that you can do, so down as far as you can, and then plant into that. And hopefully that compost there will act as a sponge and hold on to moisture and the nutrients just as well. So I don't think you need to buy news, lots of newspapers to read just to put in the garden, really. You know, it's, it's probably a good way of recycling them, though, James, isn't it? <laughs> it is a way. It's, it's, it's a sort of lining, lining the cat litter tray form, of, right, form yeah. of gardening, is how that works. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Richard from Sheffield, and we had a lavateria cutting from my in-laws, which has sadly died, so I hope they're not listening to this. But um, it was about four years ago, we've, we've trimmed it back or pruned it every year to about six inches from the bottom. Pruned it last year, and it's not grown again this year. It's quite woody at the base. I just wondered, what are your tips for pruning lavateria? Sometimes when we cut back things that are just a little bit tender, so they'll get frosted in the winter, for example, on lavateria where the leaves drop off, when they get cut back hard, the frost then gets into it and starts to kill it down. So if you've got a stump, you'll be quite quickly into the base and not anything left. Same with things like buddleia. They can be at risk as well if they're cut back hard at that time. But by shifting it to that late March, April time, all that spring energy goes into those buds around the base, pushes it through, and you'll get much more growth coming up at that time, which is really strong. Okay, uh, tell, tell me about Lavateras, Martin. Well, it, it's a lovely summer flowering shrub, tends to flower fairly late in the season, almost like a mallow flower. Makes quite a lot of growth, so that's the reason we cut it back to promote the new growth which it flowers on. Um, and they need that pruning, otherwise they get very woody at the base and straggly, but they're not a long-lived shrub. Um, some shrubs you can put in the garden, they'll be there in 30, 40 years, but I think with Lavatera, they need good drainage, and if you get 10 years, I think you're doing well. And they don't like really cold winter, and I mean, Steve will say better, because he's nearer to Sheffield, um, you know, at Chatsworth, and it's been quite a cold, hard winter for them, hasn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, we do grow a few, um, but yeah, they do struggle a bit. And if we have a hard winter, they struggle generally. But I think, I think we're right in terms of probably the, the time of pruning would, would hopefully see through most winters. So um, yeah, keep going, get another cutting, try again. And as, uh, as Martin says, you know, plan to replace it every few years and you've got a young, healthy plant and it yeah, should be good. Hello, I'm Judith from South Yorkshire. Um, we have a wisteria, which was probably planted about 15, 16 years ago by previous owners. And we've getting virtually no flowers on it at all. And everybody else's wisteria looks fabulous, but not ours. Oh dear, the neighbors are talking. <laughs> uh, Helen, wisteria? I was going to say, look at, I'm looking at Martin oh, yeah, because Martin. Martin's great on, on wisteria. Well, I, 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 yeah, well, thank you, Helen. That's very kind of you to say that. I think wisteria can be a bit temperamental. And, and a lot of the problem is, um, we, you, obviously, you don't know what your, the previous owners of the house planted. I mean, they could have been skin flints and tight and went and bought the cheapest wisteria that was a seedling. I'm sure they're not 
they weren't, but uh, um, if they plant a seedling wisteria, and there used to be a lot in garden centres, you don't see as many now, but they can often take up to 15 years to flower, and when they do flower, the flowers aren't always that good, they're sort of a greyish blue colour. So ideally, anybody plant a new one, always buy a grafted one, and my advice would be buy one in flower, buy one in May in a garden centre or nursery, so you can see what colour the flowers are going to be. But I think to try and get one to flower, it's important that you prune at the right time. So late summer, you know, August pruning, cut back those long whippy growths to about three inches, um, back to the framework. And then some people shorten them again in January or February. But I, I only prune mine once a year because I find it difficult to get my wife up the ladder in January. Um, <laughs> And then that creates these little short, what we call spurs, and eventually that's where the, the blossom will develop. And I, I'm also a great believer in feeding with sulfate of potash in the summer, sprinkle it around the base. Um, it, it's like, you know, sunshine in powder form, and it helps to ripen the wood and induce flowers for the following year. So hopefully, now it's started, each year you'll get more and more, and then in a few years' time, it will be absolutely glorious. I'm Dave from North Yorkshire. Um, I grow datoras uh, in pots, uh, very large pots. Um, the leaves on this year, they're very, very wrinkled. Um, they're not spreading out as they should do. Help. Okay. Um, have you have they been in the pots for a long time? Yes. When did you last repot? Um, what I found, if I repot, they don't flower. Okay. Are you repot? When you repot, do you pot them into large pots? Yes. Okay. So when the best thing to do with them, because it sounds like they're getting a bit starved. Take them, take them out of the pots, if they're in really big pots now, rake off some of the old compost, use an old fork, something like that. Ideally, the best time to do it is sort of end of February, March, and they're just starting to come into flower, uh, sorry, into growth. Um, and then put them back in the same size pot, but with about an inch to two inches of compost, fresh compost all the way around them. Um, they like quite a lot of feed, so high potash feed to get them into flower. If your leaves aren't looking brilliant, you can give them a balanced feed um, where the NPK numbers on the um, box of feed that you buy will all be the same. So mix the powder up into liquid form and water it through. Um, that will improve the leaves, but really they need... You could put some top dress on the pots now because it's a little bit late to be raking the old compost off. So you put some uh, top dress of um, a good quality compost. John Innes 3 um, is a good quality uh, loam-based compost with lots of feed in it. You could also, as well as liquid feeding, if you're not keen on doing that constantly or you forget, you could put some slow-release fertiliser pellets on the top as well and then you can just water and the feed will go through. Um, I think that's, that's the basic thing. Just keep feeding it now and then in January, February next year, when the growth starts, then change the soil, give it some new compost. Cheers, thank you. Hi, I'm Jill. I live near Utoxeter. I've got two Ceanothus. Um, I've probably had them about six years. One is doing fine. The other one has great chunks that have gone brown and dead looking. Um, I know you prune them after they've flowered in sort of Ju July. Um, if I chop all these grotty black brown chunks off, will it regrow? Or I know they're relatively short-lived plants, but what do I do? What does she do with her grotty brown chunks? Cut them out. 
Definitely cut them out. You don't want dodgy brown chunks in your CNO <laughs> first, do you? Nobody no, wants not, that. no, no. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, you're sort of more on the, the west of the country. I live near on the east. I'm in North Yorkshire. And we, oh, well, you're ready. There's a lot in from North Yorkshire. There must be a bus trip in. Um, the, uh, we, we were affected by the beast from the east, and I've got a Ceanothus that on one side, the east side, it was sort of foxy brown uh, a month ago, and I cut it hard back, and already, because it didn't kill it, it just scorched the, the foliage, already the older wood is starting to produce small green shoots, so I'm confident it will recover. So I would, as soon as you get home this evening, I would get your secretaires out um, and give it a good prune now. Um, hello, it's Anne from Sheffield. Um, I've got I've got about three or four New Zealand flax, uh, green and red ones, and they look like they've died. They're about ten years old. So, how long do they normally live for, or is it the beast from the east? Do you think that's killed them? Okay, so New New Zealand flax formiums used to be used as armour by the Maoris. Do you know that? Yeah. Very useful. Um, so uh, they should live on um, and they do tend to get the older leaves and get a, a bit woody and you have to sort of take pull out some of those older leaves but they tend to live on and I, I don't think I wouldn't say they, they should live beyond the 10 years um, so I think it probably is the winter that seems to have caught them any signs of growth at the base any signs have you have you sort of pulled out some of the old because normally it would respond you know we, we leave ours outside all winter and they do often get look quite sad by the end of winter, in, end of winter. And, you know, we do pull all the old leaves off and normally you will get, be getting growth from the base. So have a look and persevere. Leave them a bit longer. Don't, don't give up because they may well yet respond. So, um, yeah, I don't think there's any, uh, anything I, else. I, I bought a beautiful red formium last year. I spent a lot of money on it because I took a big tree out and put that in. It looked great. And I thought, you know, I'm really going to look after this plant and fleece it. And then there was a, uh, a frost not forecast. It was forecast minus five and it was actually minus 15 in the morning. And I hadn't fleeced it that night and it took it right off. So I had to cut all the dead leaves right back to the ground. I did then put fleece over because there was nothing left. So I, f I fleeced the whole area and apparently what I should have done was mulched it up right round the bottom of the plant because you need to protect the crowns. Um, so I left the fleece on until about the probably middle of March. I did look, there was a little bit of sign of something happening. So everything was, as I say, cut back and then it started to come through. And it's now about that high and it's coming, but it's quite slow, it's getting there. But I would have thought by now there should have been some growth on it. it it's getting, you know, it's probably not a good thing. But if you do replace and get some new ones, because I did lose my original ones back in 2000 when it was really, really snowy and cold, um, mulch them in the autumn or tie, uh, before the frost, tie some fleece around the base just to protect the crowns, really. Some are definitely hardier than others as well. So um, often those pinky shades are not so good, but things like blackadder, which was a newish one a few years ago with deep burgundy uh, brown leaves. That's really tough. That's proved really good. And cookianum, a big old stripy one, is also one that's proved very good. Uh, we, we, for the first time last year, we planted some out probably seven or eight years ago. And for the first time last year, we had some lovely flowers as well. So it was a bonus last summer to get the real big flower spikes as well. So yeah, keep working out. You know, new varieties are uh, definitely hardier. And, uh, but when you get to the flowering point, they are fantastic as well. So. Persevere. Okay, we have got time for one more question in this historic moment, this historic first podcast. Your name and where you come from. Uh, I'm Joan from Skelmersdale in Lancashire. We've got two hibiscus plants in pots. One of them is really taken off. It's massive. We planted them at the same time, brought them at the same time. 
and one of them isn't. But I did a test. I planted one in ericaceous and one in ordinary soil, and I can't remember which is which. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know which is doing which one's doing the best. So what should have been planted in? Is it the one on the left or the one on the right? It's the one on the right. Is uh, the, why is the hibiscus on the right doing better than the one on the left? Uh, who would like to do hibiscus? Well, they, they, they don't need acid soil, so I'm assuming the one that's in ericaceous, whether it's left or right, is the one that's not do, doing so well. But do we know, are these indoor hibiscus or the hardy outdoor ones? Yeah, the hardy outdoor Oh, well, they, yeah, they, they certainly don't need yeah. an acid soil, do they? They, um, they uh, just a, a neutrally, maybe slightly acid, but I think ericaceous compost would be too acidic, and it can, Lee's more technical than me, he's a bit of a scientist, is Lee, but if it's too acid, I think it will lock up some of the nutrients that it should need. So it's your fault, basically. <laughs> I would uh, knock it out of its pot, use something like John Innes number three. John Innes number three can be variable. It should be, by the sound of it, something you tip out the packet and looks the same. But if it, sometimes the ingredients can vary. So if it feels very sticky, add just a bit more grit and then use that, but it contains soil. Soil doesn't break down like compost, so it'll last you two to three years without needing to necessarily repot again as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for sharing this, this wonderful occasion with us. I hope that when you come back to another show, you will come and join us again. So, Steve, Martin, Helen, Lee, thank you very, very much indeed. Now, for those of you out there in podcast land listening to us, the show is still going on, okay? And you can still buy tickets right up until the 10th of June. So that's up until Sunday, so come and do that. Anybody who wants to find out more about the questions that have been asked during this podcast, go to the RHS website. The RHS website is enormous and all-encompassing and will tell us everything you ever wanted to know about gardening. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very, very much indeed. Go forth, enjoy the show, buy lots of plants, have fun. Thank you. Thank you.